Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Cast. I'm Vicky. I'm Janelle. And we're back again with mm-hmm. another depressing episode. Man, we're just really hitting it home. <laughs> Literally. If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. We got a doozy today, so strap in. Yeah, maybe take a few antidepressants before you start this. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. Uh, but first, let's head over to the newsroom. So we are back on our food crime list. I know we took a little hiatus. There's been a lot of criminal justice stuff going on. There's been a lot of us stuff going on. So uh, we're going to roll on back. We want to lighten this episode with some fun food crimes. Yeah, we got to before it gets too heavy. Real heavy. Uh, So in St. Petersburg, there is a very unfortunate restaurant called the Chataway Restaurant that had a break-in not once, but twice in a row. The first one, um, a burglar broke in and helped himself to chicken wings, beer, and $500 worth of other stuff. They okay. they caught this on like a video recording that they had on the restaurant. Literally, the night that they looked at that footage and found that the guy had broken in that night, a completely different person <laughs> broke into the restaurant, went into the bathroom, stripped all of his clothes off, and then sat and ate a cup of the Marie instant lunch ramen noodles mm-hmm. um, that he had brought with him sat naked at the restaurant eating that and then he played a set of bongos and did some it says light spray painting um how high do you have to be i don't know <laughs> but he was nice enough to mostly clean up before he left and while he came in with pants on when he rode away on his bike he was completely naked Sounds like a acid trip to me. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty funny because it says an, a member of the Chataway staff told the Tampa Bay Times, I'm not sure if he took his pants with them, but we didn't find them. We still don't know where his pants are. Oh, my God. He also doesn't know where his pants are. He also does not. He probably lost them somewhere in the restaurant in his bongo playing f- fever. I mean, they must not lock any of their doors. Well, it's just, it's so funny to me that literally two, two nights in a row, like just some weird shit happening at this restaurant. I mean, I wouldn't be too mad because it's not like they're really doing anything. Like one guy's eating some food. It's like, okay, maybe he's homeless or something like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. As long as he's not like shitting all over your restaurant. I guess. Cares? Yeah. <laughs> I suppose. But poor Chetaway restaurant. They'll get it together soon enough. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe they should just be, yes, St. Petersburg. Yeah. Yeah. They, maybe they should just be like 24 hours. Yeah. (laughs) That would solve your problem. Just have a security guard. Yeah. Just hang out. Right. Uh, We are going to roll on over to Netflix and Kill. This week we are talking about The Great Hack. Uh, This is a newer documentary on Netflix. It, uh, it's data, arguably. The world's <laughs> most valuable asset is 
being weaponized to wage cultural and political wars. The dark world of data exploitation is uncovered through the unpredictable personal journeys of players on different sides of the explosive Cambridge Analytica slash Facebook data story, which mm-hmm. if you've been paying attention to the news in the last five years, you will know what the Cambridge Analytica um, Facebook debacle was. It was pretty fucking crazy. Still, kind of is. <laughs> still yeah, still is. There's still actually stuff happening um, in Britain's parliament, I know, relating to Cambridge Analytica and the whole deal, because yeah. um, they are a UK-based firm. But you said you had started watching mm-hmm. this, right? So yeah. what are your first impressions? Um, I liked it a lot. It's it's kind of going back a little bit to the way they used to do their documentaries on Netflix. It's not so like like the way they did Making a Murder and the yeah. crime documentaries they've been yeah. doing previously. It's like very back to the old school Netflix documentary style. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really great. I think it does a, a good job of, of course, I'm only halfway through. <laughs> my, sure. My opinion sure. could change. Yeah. Um, but it does a really good job of, like, explaining what exactly happened mm-hmm. and the kind of, like, trajectory where they think it's going to go. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it also scares the shit out of you. Yeah. Um, well, and it does. It does. <laughs> everyone knows everything about you. It do, Yeah. Well, I've accepted that. Yeah. Um, it does really delve into this issue of how do we protect ourselves and our data in a time of like super technology we've never been in the same position as we are in the modern world because we've just never had access to technology and um data as we have now and really it comes down to privacy issues and what is considered yours and yep. what is considered the property of the social media platform or whatever platform that you're posting on once you post it is it still yours can it be used for other things by posting are you allowing the company that you're posting to to sell your data to other companies like these are all things that we need to be thinking about a lot mm-hmm. um there is a great podcast called Breach. Um, Season one, or I'm sorry, not Breach, So Bob. The name of it is So Bob. Breach is really good. (laughs) So Bob came out of Breach. Breach covered the Equifax scandal and the Yahoo deal. Which you can get uh, your settlement if you go to Equifax uh, settlement.com. It's something like that. Um, I don't apply because I didn't have any relation to the companies that were involved in that. Yeah. Um, But (laughs) so Bob is um, a great it's it's a still a tech podcast, but it is answering these questions that a lot of people have about um, data, the way that companies are using it, things like location data. They did one on Google Maps a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. That's like, what are these location services that I have turned on? What am I accepting when I hit yes to like terms and conditions that are kind of educating people about how they use their stuff online? Yeah, I work in a museum and um, if you want to launch like an app or mm-hmm. something like that you have the option of buying all of this data about location services of other people in your area yeah and every time they step into your facility it will track them that's creepy so if you have your location services on it is being used for marketing in yeah a lot of businesses so yeah well so and even know. things like targeted marketing mm-hmm. is a big thing now too when you think that you the phone's listening to you. It truly is. Like when you are searching for something on the internet and then you see ads for it, that's what all of those, um, that's how they're getting your data is they're tracking you and that's, yeah. they see you in, via Google walk into a Target and then you start seeing Target ads on your phone. Yeah. Because they know you went into a Target. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot tell you how many times that works. So I, um, my real job outside of the podcast is I do graphic design for a company that produces t-shirts and stuff. And when I'm looking online for things that customers have referenced, I'll be, you know, looking for volleyball, something or other. The next thing I know, every web page I'm looking at at work is like volleyball, volleyball, volleyball. I'm like, I just, but it's, <laughs> but it was for it's work. Not even me. It's like, not even me. But I mean, you're going to confuse all of those robots tracking yeah. you because they're going to be like, you're like volleyball and murder and margaritas and yeah right <laughs> everything yeah. yeah and naps what yeah, <laughs> but i think um something like the great hack is a good look into this issue of data privacy especially now when we're talking about things like dna privacy and um fac- facial recognition software that's oh, starting naps. to come into 
uh, you play a little using bit. using that stupid app that makes you look old. Rush Congra- has got your data. Congratulations. Your face has now been scanned into a database. <laughs> Putin can wear your face whenever he wants. I mean, they're going to totally give you the fugitive treatment. They're going to own your fucking face. <laughs> Putin's probably like, I feel like being George today. Mm-hmm. 3D print me a George mask. Yeah, it's what it's going to come to. You know, not the old one, the young one. I don't even do my fingerprint on my phone. Oh, I do. I don't do that because it's like, <clears throat> I, you're not going to have my face, my eyes, my fingerprints, all of that. Yes, no. It's easier. <laughs> One of these days, I'm going to go live in a yurt off the grid, goddammit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so check it out. The Great Hack on Netflix. Uh, worth a watch, I think, if you're trying to educate yourself about data privacy, which I think that all Americans should which actually, should. all people, Everyone. not Global just Americans. <laughs> I think I think it's like really pertinent for us at this point in time because of the Russian interference on the election. Also, like, but most people are totally oblivious. They're yeah. just like, I'm on Facebook. They yeah. don't understand. And it's also hard to go into your settings and your privacy stuff and understand what you need to do to eliminate that. Yeah, it's not very accessible to the average person. Yeah. Nobody knows what's going on. Right. And that's on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> so check it out. Conspiracy. Oh. <laughs> This is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for our listeners. Um, like I said, we're going to be talking about some heavy stuff. Some children. Like chil- children, children things. things. Uh, so this week, mm-hmm. we are covering orphan trains, <laughs> baby farming, and really the world's, well, the nation's first adoption system. Say baby train again. Orphan train. You're welcome. You've been waiting. I've been waiting. Been waiting since the beginning. She's doing that before we Every start recording. Every time you hear Orphan Train, I'm going to just be like, woo, woo. Oh, God. I should have brought, I have a wood whistle. I should have brought it. <laughs> Damn it. Missed opportunity. Uh, so really, before we talk about the awful, awful, horrible woman that created our adoption system. I mean, nothing's really Total monster. Yeah. Um, We kind of have to start way, 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 way back in the mid-1800s with the creation of, really, the world's first welfare system, or the nation's first welfare system, um, and the use of American... quotes on that. (laughs) Yes. Uh... The and the use of American orphan trains. So during the mid 1800s, as a result of conflicts in Europe, uh, New York was seeing this just huge influx of immigrants into New York. Many of these were children who were homeless and neglected and therefore just roaming around on the streets. And in the times before any sort of like welfare system or social services system, people were really at a loss of what to do with all of these children that were just around. Put them in a factory. So, <laughs> so that's what they did. No. Um, well, kind of. When so. Along comes a man named Charles Loring Brace. He, uh, in 1950, I'm sorry. He sounds legit. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very old timey long name. Mm-hmm. Also, he was a pastor. Okay. So that's yeah, a thing. Sounds trustworthy. <laughs> in 1853, he founded the Children's Aid Society to address this issue of all of these homeless children by building housing, creating trade schools, and attempting to kind of sort out the illiteracy and truancy issues that they were having. But the number of children was just way too large for a place like New York to handle itself. And so rather than just throwing these kids into institutions, he opted instead to send them out to the West, the newly settled West, to find homes with families on the frontier. Nothing can go wrong. Right. Now, tell me if this sounds familiar. Okay. The children would be gathered up and they'd be taken out West with adult chaperones. And upon their arrival, large groups of people would gather around to ogle at the new arrivals. This gave potential adoptive parents the opportunity to look over and choose their child. And when they arrived at their new homes, it was understood that they would be working for the family in exchange for their adoption. Hmm, Sounds like indentured servitude. Sounds like slavery. A little bit, right? (laughs) They even had like the posters for these events that were just like, need some children? Come see our new stuff. We got all the children you can... Oh, my gosh. Old, young, tall, small. Yeah, and for a time, there was actually a government program where uh, families would receive money in order for adopting children, which plays into the baby farming because Mm -hmm. people would... 
give me the money. Yeah, they would. And part of it, too, was like, so, depending on where you were, like, sometimes you got like a lump sum for adopting a child. Sometimes you had those, um, like, scattered through payments. Mm-hmm. And when you got a, lot, a, a lump sum, more often than not, they would let the child die or kill the child themselves. Because mm-hmm. it's like, well, you're not netting money. me any money. Yeah. <sighs> People. I don't know why they wouldn't just try to resell the child. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, Turn I guess. profit. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, during these, like public sales of children, there was virtually no vetting of families at all, and sibling groups were easily separated. The orphan train system was in place for around 75 years, um, which is a long-ass time. Very long train. But towards the... (laughs) Oh. (laughs) You know. Yeah. It's not a literal long train. Okay. Uh, towards the end of this time, social work had become like an actual profession that was primarily dominated by women um, because Adams here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And it was it was like one of those professions that was acceptable as a woman in the early 1900s to have. Yeah. That's the only job they could really have. Yeah. Yeah. Other than being a mother. Yeah. <laughs> and so because of this, like the trains weren't really seen as a necessity anymore. Which leads us to the star slash monster of our story, <laughs> Georgia Tan. A stonster. The stonster, <laughs> a stonster of this story. Yes. Um, I do want to preface this by saying there is a shit ton of information about Georgia Tan yes. and everything that she did. You are getting a very condensed down version mm-hmm. for time. Um, we'll talk to you about some other places that you can find some information about her Definitely. at the end of my thing. Your thingy. The thingy. <laughs> So Georgia Tan was born in Philadelphia, Mississippi to George Clark Tan and Beulah Isabella Tan. George was a district court judge garnering status within the community and his wife Isabella came from a pretty wealthy family herself so she was afforded her own status. And while he was respected, Judge Tan was seen as this kind of arrogant, argumentative, and domineering guy. So quintessential judge. Yes. <laughs> especially in the early 1900s oh where they're gosh. just like, I have the power! Oh, all the power. Yeah. Uh, he, of course, wished for his daughter to become a concert pianist as a respectable lady. Really? I thought it would just be like a wife. Well, you to be a wife, and that's all. When when you got money, you can have aspirations other than children, but not very many. Just the one, just the concert pianist. Right. Uh, so he enrolled his daughter Georgia in piano lessons from the age of five until she graduated with a degree in music in 1913 from Martha Washington College in Virginia. Georgia, as you might expect, as somebody who was forced into something as a child, didn't actually like playing the piano. Are you sure? (laughs) Well, so they say. Okay. Uh, Really, she wanted to follow in her father's footsteps and become a lawyer. And in those days, this is something (laughs) I didn't know was a thing. And from what I understand, is still something you can do. But in those days... You were able to do a four-year apprenticeship under uh, somebody within the legal field and then take the bar exam Mm -hmm. and become a lawyer. Most people don't do that anymore. Um, Some people still do because it is kind of believed that the best learning is in on the job. Um, But it's most of the time people go to school for this now. So, Judge Tan allowed his daughter Georgia to study under him, and she was able to master passed the Mississippi State Bar exam, so good for her. Um, But if you've forgotten, it's the early 1900s and women having actual professions like practicing law was super weird. I thought you were going to say like, and the laws weren't actual real laws and that's why she passed. But also also that, yeah. No, it was... Women... Uh, we're like, shit on all yeah, the time. You got you got a master's degree. Congratulations. Go home. Yeah. You take <laughs> like, a master's degree, hang it up on the wall of your kitchen, and then make me a sandwich. Right. Feel real proud <laughs> about the paper you've earned. Oh God. Uh, so of course, George's father, being somebody of influence in the town, wasn't like really into breaking the mold, so to speak, and didn't allow her to practice. So he let her train under her, but didn't allow her to practice law just like you know it's like a pat on the head and a little scoot out the room Mm -hmm. yeah instead she opted to uh spend her time doing the one thing that women were allowed to do social work 
they're going to say, sit around. <laughs> Watch the children. Sip lemonade. <laughs> By 1922, Georgia Tan was working at the Mississippi Children's Home Society as a receiving director at the Kate McWillie Powers Receiving Home for Children. It was around this time that she adopted an infant that she named June and family friend Anne Antwood, Anne Atwood, not Antwood. <laughs> There's a lot of complicated words together in yes. one sentence. Family friend Anne Atwood also worked for the home as a house mother, and eventually the two of them began a relationship with each other. Scandal. Um In 1924, the home became suspicious of Georgia's questionable child placing methods and her employment was terminated. So this actually led to Georgia, her adopted daughter, June, Ann Atwood, and her infant son, Jack. They moved uh, from Mississippi to Memphis, Tennessee. What were her methods? Just blindly pointing at a family and being like... You go here! (laughs) Yeah, even then, she was in the habit of taking children from we'll say families that were more in poverty and giving them to families that were not in such poverty okay. only sounds okay except for the end there <laughs> yes yeah um so this the fact that there were two women living together was a little weird but there was a practice at the time known as boston marriages where two I'm sorry <laughs> this is, is another like thing that i learned shake, like a boston yeah. cream donut it's a boston marriage uh where There's cream in the middle. It basically <laughs> allowed for two financially independent women to live together and not have it seen as like a uh, homosexual relationship, essentially. It would just be two financially independent women together, women living together. But the other thing along with this um, was that Anne Atwood, just before they moved, she had her son Jack, who was later adopted by Georgia Tan as well. Um, but because of this, she had this child out of wedlock when they moved uh, to Memphis, Tennessee. It was really easy for her to pass off as a widower. Oh, yeah. So it was less weird for the two of them to be living mm-hmm. together. I was going to say, yeah, there's lots of of widows um, yeah. like living with other families and stuff because you're considered yeah. like... Not a widower, a widow. Yeah. Is that a, did I use the widow? A widower is a, a man, male, right? A yeah, a widow. Widowed. Yeah. Girl, you knew what I meant. Yes. I glo- like glo- it's fine. I will. I'll come back and call myself out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. In Memphis, Georgia became the executive secretary of the Memphis chapter of the Tennessee Children's Home Society in Shelby County. It's here where she began her insane amount of child trafficking and baby farming. Using horrifying tactics from lying to new mothers to legal actions and pressure, Georgia was able to place over 5,000 children with families all over the country, many of them wealthy. Um, I will also say at the top of this, not all children were in a terrible situation. There were some that were placed with good families and had no issues. Um, However... There was a lot of really bad shit that happened. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so speaking of wealth, this is a venture that was netting Georgia the big bucks for her time as well. While the state of Tennessee allowed agencies to place children in an effort to stop the selling of children, because, again, that was an issue at that time, those agencies were allowed to charge for their services. So they weren't charging for the actual children, just for their services and placing the children with family. In fact, adoption agencies still Still do do that. that. (laughs) In Tennessee, prospective parents were charged about $7 for an adoption, which isn't... I mean, for the time, it's kind of high, but it's also not a lot. Um, But Georgia capitalized on this by primarily arranging out-of-state adoptions and then charging a premium price. 80% of these were in New York and California, amounting to... 3,000 adoptions in those two states alone between 1940 and 1950. It's a lot of kids. Yeah. Uh, Couples in these states would pay around $700 for an adoption. So she was able to charge 700 times more. Is that right? Sure. Sounds math. like math. That's probably wrong. It's fine. A lot more. She was able to charge more. a lot more. Hundred. That's what I was going for. Hundred percent more. Sure. Hundred times more. 
100 times more. Sure. Yes. Math. Seven times 100 hey guys, is 700. Know, we're not fucking mathematicians. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and of course, most of this money that she was charging went back to Georgia Tan herself. Uh, She's doing all the hard work, guys. Right? It's hard work stealing children and placing them with families. She would also charge for things like background checks, air travel, and adoption paperwork, all of which were either never done or were charged at an incredibly inflated price. I mean, a background check would be great if it was actually done. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, there, Especially since there wasn't really any vetting of families to begin with like just anything that resembles a background check these um the costs for uh adoptions were similar in places like mississippi arkansas and missouri and these weren't just regular families adopting children either joan crawford her twin daughters are products of georgia tan Mm -hmm. along with june allison and dick powell's daughter was also an adoption adoption from georgia tan and you know more about wrestling than i do Mm -hmm. but wrestler rick flair the nature boy the nature boy (laughs) um he was a child that was adopted out by georgia's agency Mm -hmm. so he doesn't know whose biological mother is yeah which is crazy you can read about it yes you can Mm -hmm. you may at this point be wondering where all of these children came from well where'd all these children come from well let me tell you georgia was quite resourceful (laughs) she would go out and find single mothers with little to no income and dupe them into handing their children over many of them were tricked into signing over their parental rights with promises of like free health care or temporary placement so one of the things that they would do is they would take children from maybe like a struggling mother and say Mm -hmm. we will temporarily take care of your child until you get your shit figured out once you get it figured out come back and we'll give you your child back Which basically is still a practice today it is um and so instead of signing temporary placement orders they'd be tricked into signing uh the handing over of parental rights mm-hmm. yeah the legal guardianship mm-hmm Using her connections, she was able to arrange for children of inmates in the state's uh, mental institutions to be turned over to her as well. Eventually, because the demand for children was ever increasing, Georgia Tan would straight up kidnap kids. Got a little too that much checks. to just be, yeah, right. Not not enough to just be circumventing the system, but let me just take some kids too. I mean, if you see a good looking kid on the street, you're like, oh girl, let me, let me get that kid. Oh girl, no, no, no. That child looks like it could give me seven hundred more dollars. I hope nobody just cuts that clip out and puts it on the internet. Oh, like going to. Janelle O'Malley, pedophile. <laughs> John O'Malley, thieving children off the street, thieving children. Uh, good, if you know any anything about me you know i do not no. enjoy children <laughs> just gonna put this out there uh we don't like kids in that way and we also don't kidnap children so i also just don't want children no. period no <laughs> no thanks we're good yeah <laughs> eventually like i said because the demand for children was so high she was kidnapping kids sometimes parents would go to pick up their children from nursery schools to find that the hard quotes on welfare agents um had taken them away from the nursery schools while they were gone Another favorite was finding unwed mothers giving birth at hospitals, waiting for the babies to be born, taking them, and then telling the mothers that their children's had their children had died in childbirth. Which that's, is that's awful. the most fucked up. That is fucked up. This is all made easier, of course, with the help of Memphis family court judge Camille Kelly, who was Georgia's kind of hand of the law. She would come to court claiming that the children weren't being properly provided for at a home. And knowing her case would land in the lap of Judge Kelly, um, she Judge Kelly would then push those cases through. Mm -hmm. Judge Kelly also chose to remove the children of divorce from newly single mothers and place them into a home. So it's like, you got divorced? Sorry, no kids. How dare you be a woman? Yeah, basically. (laughs) How dare you try to be a single mother also? How dare you just be a woman at all? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I'm sure... You're unwed. Mm-hmm. You're divorced. Mm-hmm. Well, fuck you then. Well, and part of me is I'm sure like, so these mothers get their kids taken away and then they're probably like freaking the fuck out. Real easy for them to get put into a mental mental institution for hysteria. So that's fun. I'm sure she probably did that too. Got yeah. women committed. Yeah. So Just to take, take their, their kids. Children. Yeah. yeah. Um, along with Judge Kelly, Georgia was shielded from retribution by former Memphis Mayor E.H. Crump, also called Boss Crump. 
Old Grumpy. Um, there is a whole lot of stuff about him that I'm not going to go into today. I mean, southern lawyers and southern judges of this time period. Dude, when you got a name like Boss Crump in the South in the early 1900s. You're committing all kinds of illegal acts. I imagine <laughs> just by saying that you are painting a mental picture in your brain of what this person is and does and looks like. And you're probably right. I'm going to say sweaty, <laughs> overweight. Does a lot of ha ha ha. Yeah. You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> if you thought it couldn't get any worse. Oh, stop. <laughs> it can always get worse. Yes. Uh, Georgia is blamed for the death of many, many children as well. During her time at the society, Shelby County saw the highest infant mortality rate in the nation. Later, in 1950, the state did an investigation into the Tennessee Children's Home Society in Georgia Tan- and Georgia Tan that stated, quote, while the financial transactions of Miss Tan were shocking enough, other facts came to our attention, which disturbed us even more. We found that on many occasions, babies had been taken from their mothers at the hospitals when only a few hours old and placed in nursing homes in and about Memphis, where they were without medical care. Many of these children died. Not only that, but the children placed in the Memphis home itself were not properly cared for, and many children died while there as a direct result of ignoring physicians' orders. Doctors would prescribe formulas and medicines which were completely disregarded on orders from the director of the Memphis home. End quote. Um, if you were unlucky enough to like not be a desirable child, which were typically children with like blonde hair, children with Jewish backgrounds, the younger children. Yes. <laughs> we'd, yeah. be, we'd be cast out into the street. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I got brown hair and brown eyes, so... Yep. Uh, um, they would also, like... Irish. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> they would also, like, falsify some records of children to give them those backgrounds, so they would mm-hmm. make them a few years younger, or they would, on paper... The purest, most Norwegian child. Yeah, yeah. Their birth certificate would just say, the perfect child. Yeah. <laughs> So if you were unlucky enough to be one of these kids, you were simply left to die of malnutrition in the home. Sounds legit. Right. Um, This, along with many, many claims of physical and sexual abuse, make Georgia Tan one of those terrible kind of people. Like we said at the top, she's a fucking monster. Mm Mm-hmm. What do you call her? A stonster. A stonster. George Tian was able to cover her trail a little bit by destroying many of the records related to these adoptions, claiming that they were shielded by state privacy laws, Mm. which the idea of privacy laws in the early 1900s is kind of like, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. The practice of destroying records eventually got the society removed from the Child Welfare League of America's list of qualifying institutions in 1941. As mentioned before, an investigation into Georgia Tan was launched in 1950 and into the black market adoptions and nearly $1 million in profits that she received from them. Tan is estimated to have stolen over 5,000 children, but due to lack of documentation on a great effort of Georgia Tan's part, most adoptions weren't investigated and nobody's ever been restored to their biological families. Following my research of this, I did actually find one, a single case of somebody um, being reunited with their biological parent. And this was because when she was adopted out, she was old enough to have known who her biological mother was and have that knowledge mm-hmm. as something to kind of start yeah, with. Like a name at the very least. Right. Yeah. Um, whereas a lot of kids were babies and yeah. just didn't know or were taken at birth and just mm-hmm. never knew their biological parents. That's what happened to, to Ric Flair. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you think with like DNA ancestry technology that somebody might be able to figure it out? And they might. Mm-hmm. Um, but you got to think, too, when you're talking like the early to mid 1900s, it's like some of those people will have died. Oh, definitely. Um, some, I would say a lot of them. A few. Well, and the, the people who are would be like the children looking for their parents, they mm-hmm. would be in their 70s, 80s ish, yeah. you know, but if they had kids, then those kids could you know, yeah. go on to figure out where their yeah. great grandparents But it's also entirely possible that some of them just never knew. Yeah. You know, especially the ones that were adopted as babies. Yeah, because that was actually pretty taboo to 
to be like an adopted family. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, lots of those families tried to pass them off as like they were already family members. You know, like, yes. Oh, this is my my yeah. dead sister's daughter. You right. Know, something like that. Right. Yeah. While the 1950 report really kind of brought the scope of her abuse to light, um, Georgia died of uterine cancer only three days before charges were filed by the state. I know. It's like, (laughs) even in death, you game the fucking system. So while all of this information is totally awful, uh, and as much as I hate to say it, it isn't all bad. Okay, you're going to have to sell this to me. Okay. <laughs> Thanks to Georgia Tan's horrific... I'm not saying it's totally fixed and better. I also want to preface it with that, because our, our oh, child man. welfare system is super shit still. See all the stories coming out of McHenry County right now. Yeah, no DCFS. kidding. DCFS. Oh, goodness. Um, Thanks to Georgia Tan, Tennessee began a series of adoption reforms aiming to eliminate the profit from selling children, standardizing record-keeping practices, which is not something that they had, um, and making it easier for separated siblings to find each other. Not necessarily for siblings to find their biological parents, but just for siblings to be reunited. Also, thanks to Georgia and her theory that the only people worthy of adopting poor children were rich people... It, the idea of adoption became much more of a status symbol and less stigmatized, therefore making it easier for people and families who were actually caring families mm-hmm. to adopt children. This definitely paved the way for our modern adoption system. Obviously, there has been some changes since Georgia Tan's time. Um, how, some. However, <laughs> yeah, like I said, <clears throat> again, this is one of these things I... I agree that we don't have a perfect system. However, it is better than no system and better than people literally selling children. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. You I think you and I are going to disagree on this. Again, not saying the adoption system is great, but no, no. we wouldn't have any sort of adoption system without her. I think I've just witnessed it more. Um, having like family members who've given children up for adoption mm-hmm. and family members who were adopted themselves. Yeah. I think I just... My dad was adopted. Yeah. Like, <laughs> having a lot of family members yeah. in and out of that system, I think I just have a, you know... Yeah. And the I relationship think, I have with it is different. I will <laughs> say, I think that the people that I know um, that have been adopted have had a positive experience. Yeah. Um, it's I haven't seen personally the other side of it where it is like somebody who is a product of the foster system and has just you know bounced around and parent you know that whole thing yeah Yeah. i work with children a lot of the children i work with are um foster children in my homeschool classes mm -hmm. and then the after school program as well yeah had a lot of those kids too yeah so it's a good place to start i think with the orphan trains the um, early adoption system and the monster mm-hmm. that is Georgia Tan. That's a good place to start, but there's so, so much more to come. Yeah. I mean, if you, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast Broken Hearts, mm-hmm. the H-A-R-T-S. That's another great story to listen yes. to about the failures of the adoption system and the uh, preferences in certain um, states still to uh, rich white people. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, yeah, yeah I there's will. still these little bits uh, of stigmas and things that still need to be um, looked at. Yeah, I will say, um, if you want to learn more about Georgia Tan and the early adoption system, first of all, there's a couple of, of places that you can go to. Yeah, because her story's long and intense. It is. Like I said, that was an abridged version. Mm-hmm. Um, first, I would highly suggest Behind the Bastards did a two-part episode on her called... Uh, the woman who adopt the woman who created our adoption system by stealing five thousand babies two part mm-hmm. episode it's something like that. Um, you can also check out the book The Baby Thief by Barbara Raymond. It's like kind of the it's it's widely considered like the book on Georgia Tan and mm-hmm. all the crazy bullshit that she did. So yeah. check that out. She's good at covering her tracks. So. Yeah. What a crazy <laughs> bee. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So um, there's going to be lots of parallels between your story and mine. (laughs) As I assume. It's hard not to. Mm -hmm. But if you think that baby farming doesn't happen now, you're wrong. It definitely still happens. Um, I was reading into stories to look for one that I wanted to cover, and I came across one from as recent as 2011 about a baby farm that was raided in Nigeria, where 32 girls between the ages of 15 and 17 were forced to produce children oh for the director God. of the Cross Foundation. So, I mean, it's still a thing. Yeah. It still happens. Um but I wanted to touch on something that was a little bit closer to home for me, in case you didn't know my last name is fucking Irish. Um, I have that descent. Uh, I have relatives who were adopted, um, people who've been given up for adoption. I yeah. wanted to look into um, a tale that's from Ireland, and it is of the Bon Secor Mother and Baby Home, okay. which is also known as The Home. So you'll hear me refer to it as The Home a lot. The Home. It's also um, referred to in a lot of literature as uh, The Lost Children of Tuam. Okay. Which is the city in which this takes place. So The Home was operated between 1925 and 1961 in the town of Tuam, County Galway, Ireland. It was a maternity home for unmarried mothers and their children. The home was run by the Bon Secor Sisters, which is a religious order of Roman Catholic nuns. Okay. Um, they also operated a, a hospital called the Grove Hospital in town, so this is kind of like an offshoot of that. Okay. Unwed pregnant women were sent to the home to give birth. A lot of times they stayed there for a decent amount of time after giving birth. Um, mm-hmm. It just was a thing in Ireland. <laughs> yeah. The building that eventually became the home was actually built in 1841 and was a workhouse under the Irish Poor Laws, which, if you're not familiar with the Irish Poor Laws, it is uh, a set of like laws that was enacted by Ireland as a way to combat extreme poverty at the time. Uh, it provided uh, housing and work, so you had, you know, you were part of society's working person. But... Weren't the workhouses kind of like really shitty places oh, to be were in, right? Horrible. Like many abuses and overworks. But worse. Yeah, 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 okay. Just so, making sure I'm thinking of the right thing yeah. because that gives me real bad omens to then like turn that into an unwed mother facility. Turn that like, into, yep. Oh, God. Um, so it started out at this already horrifying thing, and this was right um, just before the Irish famine. Okay, so. Where they it lost already, all their potatoes? Uh, it was all crops, not just potatoes. Common yeah, potatoes. Fair. Um, so there was already issues with poverty and lack of food, and then the famine hits, okay. and these workhouses were so, so overfilled. That's when they started sending people overseas. Okay, they would like be like, "Okay, here's a ticket. Now get the fuck out of Ireland." People were getting tickets for free to come out to the um, United States. Yeah, that's how fucked up it was. Jeez. So we're it's already starting out with a not great history of this this place. Um, not only was it a workhouse in 1916 during World War One, it became a barracks. So. During the uprising against British rule, British troops took over the workhouse, evicted all the occupants, and made it their building barracks until the end of the war. Oh, damn. Which I would assume then the occupants would have been people in poverty. And so they took. I was going to say so. They took a poor house away from all the poor people, made them go back into the streets so that they could just occupy. So they could be poor in the streets again. Yep. Great. Yeah, sure. So, uh. (laughs) God, that's just absurd. I'm sorry. It's really dumb. Yeah. After the war, the property was vacant for a few years, and then the Order of the Bon Secorn Sisters, led by Mother Hortense McNamara, took over the Tuam Workhouse in 1925 and converted it into the home. (laughs) That's very ominous. Yes. This resulted, um, kind of 
a bunch of workhouses in the area started to close, they started to kind of move away from that. Um, so this was like the preeminent place where you could go if you were in need, even if you weren't an unwed pregnant mother. Um, however, though, unwed single women who became pregnant were immediately sent there. Do not pass go. This is where you are. <laughs> they were not put into a hospital. They did not stay at their home. They went straight to this nunnery. Great. Um, the nuns were all trained nurses and midwives. Uh, in 1927, the Board of Health directed that a maternity ward officially be added to the home so that mothers could be segregated from any public spaces. So even further shaming them. Yeah, what? I What? Because they allowed other people in there who were impoverished. Okay. Um, so they decided that they were going to completely segregate all of the women who were there because so they were it's unwed like and pregnant. because you're unwed and pregnant, you're not even good enough to hang we out with the poor people. Look at you, yeah, can't, you can't be seen, you can't be heard. You need well, to be it's shoved away it's into a surprising corner. to me that in a home for the poor, mm-hmm. that it was like even the poor people are like better, even the lowest in society are better than unwed, unwed mothers. Mother. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Ireland. Which is weird. Catholicism. All the things. Uh, so, this was completed in 1929, so they were officially had their own ward in the home. The mothers were required to stay inside the home for one year, doing unpaid work for the nuns as reimbursement for some of the services that were rendered. Very common practice. Really similar to a workhouse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. They were pretty much immediately separated from their children, who remained in a segregated area in the home that were strictly raised by nuns um, until they could be adopted, often without the consent of the mother. Yeah. So they were in separate places in the same in the same home. Mm-hmm. For each mother and child in the home, the county council paid the nuns one pound a week. The children stayed there until they could be adopted, fostered, or until they were old enough to be sent to industrial boarding schools. Oh, great. So, if you were never adopted, you got sent to a, quote-unquote, boarding school, which is just another way of saying a fancy orphanage. (laughs) It sounded like a work home for children. Oh, it is. They still have to work. Oh, okay. You were going to school, and then you were working during that time between dinners. Yeah, yeah. To earn your keep, and then you were sent to bed and doing it all over again. Oh so you'd God. have to clean, help cook, do laundry. Yeah. Nothing was for free. Okay. Yeah. So that happened. How exciting. Um, at this time, there were some complaints of foster children being exploited, obviously, because they worked them. Um, a newspaper article stated that the home didn't always make an effort to place children and that the pay given to foster homes was not always used to aid in the welfare of the child. So we see a common thing. I was going to say, that's not surprising. (laughs) At that point in time, especially when you're talking about like people on the brink of a famine, like that is not something that just happens. That's like a downhill spiral. Everybody's all about getting that coin. Like, well, this practice continued even into the 30s and 40s. Right, right. Until there was an official report. But again, by that time, it had, I'm sure, had become such common practice that it wasn't necessarily seen as such a terrible thing. Um, You know, spare the rod, spoiled child. This, unfortunately, was super common in all of Ireland, not in just this particular home. Yeah. And I will say, other places around the world, too. Mm -hmm. Like, New Zealand and Australia were doing this shit. Like, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah, so... Um, In 1947, a report by an official inspector who visited the home said that some of the children were suffering from malnutrition and 12 out of 31 infants examined were described as being emaciated and not thriving. It also said that the home was overcrowded with 271 children and 61 mothers living there. Wow. So that's a lot of fucking people. Death rates were, of course, extraordinarily high. Of course. We're going to... Because medicine. Oh, boy. Uh, 34% of children died in the home in 19... This was, like, numbers in 1943. 25% okay. died by uh, 1944. 23% died in 1945. So we see, like, this weird uh, staggering happen. By twenty by 1946, 27% of children had died. So it's going, like, up and down, up and down. The report stated that the death rates among infants was extremely high. The death rate had appeared to be on the decrease, but has now begun to rise again. It is time to inquire into the possible cause before the death rate mounts higher. 
Uh, the report went on to say the care given to the infants in the home is good. The sisters are careful and attentive. Diets are excellent. It is not here that we must look for cause of the death rate. Wait, 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 wait. So, Hold on. So they, they have something. Well, here's the thing. So they have this. Um, oh, just wait. Oh, just wait. <laughs> this is well. Even just like that little statement is really mm-hmm. strange because they're talking about okay, we need to inquire into the possible cause before the death rate mounts higher. But it's not because of the care or the diets or anything that's happening at the home. No, no, no. It's something else. Right. So Um, were they thinking it was like disease spreading or like, that's such a weird thing to be like, we need to figure this out, but it's not anything that's happening there. They came to the conclusion that it was because of the lineage in which the children came from. So saying because they were the product of an unwed mother, that's why they were dying. Let's just sit with that for a minute. That is a very Scientology idea. Oh yeah, I know that's a weird connection to mm-hmm. make, but that's the first thing that shows. There are so it's many, also even super fucking Catholic. Well, I was going to say there's a lot of organized religion and some religion that is considered to be uh, of cult belief mm-hmm. that will say things like because you had bad thoughts about the Lord or because your mother had bad like Scientology that's mm-hmm. one of the things they believe that if you inherited. some well if something negative happens to you in the womb it forms an engram so then you're born with those engrams mm-hmm. which are like kind of your demons in Scientology right yeah. it's like that's but no that's not that's uh, not how it works genetic trauma yeah yeah scientific terminology for it now but yeah um yeah so they're basically saying because of the stock that you come from is why you're dying yeah that's okay sure guys so that was a report that was done in 1947 not two years later another report comes out and it states all good in the home everything was in good working order Everyone's fine. The death rates are super steady. And then we hear nothing. So, JK, it's all good. Mm -hmm. All right, sure. We hear nothing. But then all of a sudden, in 1961, the home closes abruptly. Okay. I couldn't find the exact reasoning behind why it closed. Mm -hmm. But my assumption is it was because of the non-existent funding of the time. The 1960s into the 70s is when we start seeing a lot of Ireland trying to cede. There was a lot of IRA action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's just the time period. This is another also time period of mass exodus and immigration to the United States from Ireland. So a lot of those things compounding on top of each other, a lot of public services were discontinued. So that's what I'm thinking happened. Yeah. Well, you also also got to think too, in the sixties, the role of international media, I think might have played a part too. Um, I, it, it wouldn't be unreasonable to think of that because it's really easy to get away with stuff like this. If, the only people worried about it are people in your home country. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and you're kind of on the right track. There's going to be a big, huge really? newspaper story. That oh, okay. This. Yeah, well, because so. that really was like in the 60s, especially when you're talking like with the Vietnam War, like media mm-hmm. was a huge thing. And really the first time that they were able to go out into other parts of the world and the next day have a report for another country halfway around yeah. the world, mm-hmm. uh, which is... Um, a sad turn of events for us because look at what we are here in 2019. It's 24 hour news cycle. Less than that. Gross. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. 20 second news cycle. Basically. <laughs> so, um, here comes the creepy creepies. Okay. In 1975, two 12 year old boys were playing at the site of the former mother and baby home. They found a hole, which was kind of this big chamber that was in quote. This is quotes. Filled to the brim with children's skeletons under a concrete slab. So just like a just like a hole on the property. A hole in the ground that had a slab over what? it. What? Filled with the remains of babies. Oh my god. The mass grave containing the remains of these children had been discovered right the, the whole property right there. They're like, okay, this is weird. This used to be a, a, a mother and children's home. This is like a lot of fucking babies. Yeah. The government appointed investigators immediately. Uh, they went in there, started kind of looking around and excavating. There were 20 chambers officially found containing significant what? quantities of human remains. What? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. 
The chambers that were discovered were eventually um, recognized as a septic tank system that had been constructed under the home that was kind of like slowly sinking into the ground. That's yeah. where that concrete slab is. So if you've seen a, a any septic tank systems, they usually yeah. have a concrete slab or something right, to right. show the top of it. Right. So because it had been... Uh, such a long time it started to sink and it was grown over and it wasn't yeah. recognizable. After the chambers were discovered and they figured out it was a septic tank system, they went back to kind of look at records to see um, what information they could find before they start really, you know, pulling all of this apart. Right. Official records had shown that 798 infants and children had died at the home. So they believed that these children were the ones being that were buried in that septic tank system. The discovery of this amount of records launched a huge inquiry into the home and all of the missing children. Jesus. In 2012, local historian Catherine Corliss published an article about the home in the annual journal of the Old Tuam Society. At that stage, she did not have the names of all the children who had died there. But in 2013, Anne Glennon, who was a public servant at the Galloway Health Services, she was a registrar for the births, deaths, and marriages. And so her and Corliss kind of teamed up and started going through records to retrieve the names of those 796 children who had been found yeah. or who were missing, technically, from the home. Right. They found a listing of death certificates entitled the Tuam Home. Some were also under the name Tuam Children's Home as the place of death. So they were going through all the records between the start of the home in 1925 until 1961 and looking for any birth certificates or death certificates that had the place of death listed as the Children's Home or the Tuam Children's Home. Okay. Most of the children were infants that had died during these years of operation, so there wasn't really any investigation or inquiry into it because that was super common for children to pass away in infancy at this time period. Yeah, I'm surprised that they were able to find any of that and that it wasn't like destroyed as was such a common practice, especially with some sketchy shit like that. Well... They didn't discover every single birth certificate right, and death certificate right. for these children. Yeah. The birth certificates were missing more than the death certificates. Yeah. They yeah. were able to find death certificates way more. Which is still um, really surprising to me that they would document all of these kids dying. Yeah. I don't know. So in 2014, amateur the amateur historian Catherine Corliss raised questions about all of these children again publicly Mm -hmm. so she had previously kind of just stated what's going on with this property why are there so many dead babies and then no one really did anything yeah and so she was working on she found all these records she's working on it with the 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 county and she raises the question again why are all of these children not being investigated why are they in a septic tank first of all on the the premise why are there death certificates but no birth certificates? Why is there no burial records? Because that's another issue. Okay. Um, she's like, there's a mass grave. What's going on here? So it was thought that the children had died of natural causes like malnutrition. But what really was the most uh, shocking was just like the secretive, undignified manner of the burials. That's what caused all the outrage because it was a Catholic home run by nuns. They threw all of these babies into a fucking septic tank. Right. So that's yeah. what got all of the uh, people kind of riled up in that 2014 article. She raised that question like, they're all thrown into a fucking ditch, basically. Like, why is no one outraged about this? Yeah. She went on to prove her case by stating all of these. She like listed the names of the death, certi- death certificates that she found that had the home listed, like in the fucking newspaper article. She's like, "This child, this child, this child, this child." Like, there were seven hundred. She jammed it all in there. Jeez. So all of her revelations led the Irish government to commission an official investigation into the mass grave. Okay. And they started conducting test excavations in 2016. Wow. The following year, the government said it had found significant quantities of remains, which they already knew because they already fucking looked into it. So the people are like, okay, cool. We already know that. Mm-hmm. But they confirmed the age ranges. So it was 35-week-old fetuses up to three-year-old children. Oh, my gosh. That's intense. Yes. So, and it was all remains that were dated between 1925 and 1961. 
Yeah. So only in there during the time period in which the home was operating. Yeah. The site of the mother and baby home in Tuam County is expected to be completely fully excavated this later this year in fall. They're still excavating They're it now. They're still excavating. Wow. They only did test excavations. Okay, so, so it was just spot, a... Spot checks, basically. Yeah. Um, now they're going to be taking off the entire first layer of the ground and excavating the entire uh, section of all of those 20 tanks. Yeah. Um, there will also be forensic tests carried out to identify children as much as they can. Yeah. Um, and for each one to be respectfully reburied. Good. Um, on Good. hollowed ground. Yeah. There is actually a registry currently of DNA for family members seeking lost ancestors in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're going to check it against that, like, lost ancestor registry, which is basically what people did who were adopted or had adopted family members who were searching for um, other family members. Right. It's basically an adoption DNA registry. Yeah. So they're going to be checking against that. Um, so there's going to be more news and updates happening. Yeah. But this uh, story reached all the way across to the United States, to several other countries. Yeah. And it's in line with a lot of other... um, There was, like, this whole entire rash of 2014 to 2016 of people finding mass graves of fucking infants. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So this one kind of kicked off that investigation. But this, unfortunately, is, like, super commonplace in Ireland. Yeah. It it happens too Mm -hmm. much. And there's a lot of people who were sent over here from these homes. They just got a ticket. They were shoved onto a a boat and sent over. Yeah. So in very similar parallels to your story, there's lots and lots of people who had their children taken away Mm -hmm. or who were adopted out and never knew their mother, even though they were in the same fucking building. Yeah. Yeah. They never knew who their mother was, where they came from, why they were adopted, why they were an orphan in the first place. But also, like, 796 fucking infant bodies. Yeah, that is a lot. That is excessive. My that God. That is insane. That's 40 years yeah. of dead children. Yeah, which I'm surprised they were allowed to operate that. L- I mean, it was still, like, early 60s, but, well, there like... There wasn't really many rules and regulations yeah. on orphanages then, in at least that area. Yeah. Um, and still... I mean, in Ireland, that probably wasn't really a thing until the late 80s, early 90s, to be perfectly honest. Which is, like, not that long ago, guys. were religiously ran, and there wasn't a whole lot of state involvement. Right. That's fucking crazy. um, Yeah, that's That's the... That's crazy. That's the, uh... The home, a.k.a. the lost children of Dwal. Oh my god. Yeah, guys. I hope you guys are all depressed because I Yeah, am. right. <laughs> um first of all, don't steal children. Um and don't, don't throw any bodies into a septic tank. Yeah, instead of doing all of that, why don't you check out this podcast? Yeah. The investigation into the high school massacre Parkland is high school massacre. At least fourteen dead, fifty injured. Thirteen people were killed today in a mass shooting that includes a suspected gunman. Coming soon, Active Shooter, a podcast that studies the psychology, motives, and methods behind some of the most notorious active shooters in North America and beyond. We will discuss the whys, the hows, and most importantly, the proposed solutions. Can the proper mix of mental health services and gun access put a stop to what has now become an accepted everyday occurrence? Have we become desensitized and accepting of this new phenomenon? Join us as we break down each case and discuss the failures that led to each event and how we can identify and stop them in the future. Join us soon, and please subscribe to Active Shooter. All right, guys, that has been our episode. Hopefully you're good and depressed. It's Super fine. depressed. Dep- Always. Depressed enough. <laughs> um, do you have any reviews this week? Do you have any reviews, but um, check out Patreon. 
Yes. Because we have some new and exciting things going up there. Yay. Always. All the time. <laughs> um, before we go too far, we do want to remind you guys that we are going to be at Mr. Willie's Dark Arts and Oddities Con. Oh, the Willie. November 24th. <laughs> um, the con is the whole weekend, the 23rd and the 24th, but we will only be there on the Sunday. More information about that will be coming out. You can check out darkartsandoddiescon.com. I believe. Um, and we will put information on our social mm-hmm. media and our website as it gets closer and as we get a little bit more information. But we're excited to be out there. Yeah. Super excited. Super excited. And stay tuned for our other opportunity coming up to see us, you guys. Hopefully. We'll be able to release it soon. We'll see. Very soon. Maybe. Hopefully. Hopefully. Soon. Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, if you want to check out some merch, you can go to badtastecrimecast.com slash merch. <laughs> I almost didn't, but then I did. <laughs> Um, for any of our merch, we got t-shirts and hoodies and mugs and posters and bags and salsa sorts of stuff. Yes. Sausage. Sausage. And And that bad taste crime cast sausage. Bad taste. Great taste. Uh, uh, you can also, as Janelle said, check out our Patreon. Go to badtastecrimecast.com slash Patreon. No. Donate. I almost said merch to begin with. I'm real tired. It's nap time for me. Go to our website. You'll find all the. It's all there. It's all there. Yes. All in one convenient place. (laughs) Um, On that note, our sound and editing is done by Tiff Weech. Our music (laughs) is by Jason Zekshevsky, the Enigma. On that note, Vicky's going to take a nap. <laughs> yeah, no, I am literally, as soon as we're done recording, I'm going to get Jimmy John's, and then I'm going home, yeah, I'm going to eat it, and I'm going to sleep in my food coma. <laughs> yeah, I'll probably fall asleep with just bits of it. Lettuce. Lettuce, some, some little meat, chest. some crumbs, maybe some cheese, <laughs> and just me asleep with a, like, nuzzling a sandwich. <laughs> That's my it's perfect life. the best life. way to end this podcast. It so is, yes. Until next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so this has been the Bad Taste Crime. I'm Cass. 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 Okay, we're Let's try leaving. that again. Bye. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crime Cast. We'll see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Bye bye. Young women have left their bodies on the hillsides along the highway. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all evil in some form or another. Wow. <laughs>